0: In the ever deepening and awakening to the Dhamma in our own hearts there are practices that are an enduring resource of strength to all of us. Something so basic that we can often underestimate its power to transform our lives is the power of patience. And this is what I'd like to speak about this evening, the power of patience. At the beginning of my practice, I became very interested in learning about the paramis, those forces of the heart and the mind that lead us to uh, total liberation and to Buddhahood. Some of them, uh, some of those paramis, are generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, uh, energy, resolve, to, to name just a few. But patience is one of them. What was very interesting for me to learn is that the Buddha said that patience is the supreme virtue of all of these virtues. And so it's not a quality that gets as much attention or dhamma talk airtime as the other qualities or other uh, dhamma subjects do. So for this reason, it's a good... Uh, It's good to bring it forth, to put some nourishment, to put some energy, to put some light on it. I notice in my own life that as I put more light on it, more attention, reflect on the importance of it more, and uh, use it more, let it become more a spontaneously arising uh, experience in my life, my life does become easier. It can give us a sense of energy that's gentle, that's enduring, that's persevering. Lots of beautiful qualities that we need on the path. It helps us to remember to stay open during times when we feel like closing down, to stay open to the present moment no matter what is coming up in that moment. It also helps us to maintain an inner resolve to stay true to our aspiration, to our aspiration to our highest potential in this life, in this moment. It gives us that kind of gentleness yet clarity of purpose to face whatever we are faced with in our lives, whether it be in our daily life or in our deepest moments of uh, practice, on the cushion or in the field of our family, in the field of our community. For a number of people in Western culture, patience is regarded as a weakness, though. It's such a humble quality. It's so quiet and unassuming, reserved. But in spiritual circles, it is respected and highly regarded. So I wanted to start this Dhamma talk with a quote from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, that speaks about patience. He says, When it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble. That doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind, stronger in your heart, and also you remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm you can develop real wisdom. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders, by emotions, then you've lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient from a basis of altruism, then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You actually increase your strength. One of our teachers, Sayada Upandita from Burma, is well known as a teacher who encourages continuity of mindfulness. Sometimes whenever he sensed that in some way we were pushing our practice, kind of leaning into the future, wanting other than what is happening in the present moment, he would sense this. He's very sensitive to energy. Uh, sometimes he's called the energy uh, He He really encourages energy in practice. However, Balanced energy is what he encourages. So sometimes I would walk in to an interview with him and he could sense that even though I was walking slowly, that my mind was rushing ahead, that the mind was wanting something other than this present moment's experience. And so he would chant in Pali those words which mean Patience is a supreme virtue, kanti paramam tapo titika, very quietly, in his own little uh, accent, he would try to say it in English sometimes, but I would hear it a lot in Pali. So I heard that a lot in my practice, reminding me over and over again to be patient with my practice, with myself, with my fellow yogis. Sometimes uh, that phrase, kanti, paramam, tapo, titika, is translated as patience, is the best devotion because it really brings out our deepest devotion to the Dhamma in our hearts, to how we can help the Dhamma to really unfold in a way that we can learn. So through the 30 years of knowing him, I've uh, heard this more than several times as I've walked in, in interview. And uh, So sometimes those words come to me in my practice, either in Pali or in English. Sometimes he has said to me, it differently, the path to freedom is paved with patience. The path to freedom is paved with patience. He would say it in his own words. So last year I was here at the Forest Refuge um, in my own personal retreat. And I recognized during that time very subtle moments of comparing myself to previous times in practice. Judging, analyzing, and criticizing my own practice came up. These moments were manifestations of impatience, as I looked back and saw them realistically, having expectations that the practice deliver results sooner than later. And it's easy to uh, feel that way because we live in a culture where this kind of uh, instant gratification, you just press a button and information comes up on the screen or um, press a button and the you know, the coffee comes out in the perfect way that you've set up that computer on your coffee machine to bring out, let you have that perfect cup of latte or whatever it is. So I needed to take time, as as I went through um, the days of my practice, after I settled in, I needed to take time to reflect on, the importance and the power of patience in our practice. Honestly, looking at the agenda that I might have consciously or unconsciously set up for myself, I would hear Serda Upandita's voice many times. The path to freedom is paved with patience and uh, repeating that it it would just help me to be more present, no matter whether I was walking slowly or quickly around the loop, or down to get my, uh, fill my water bottle. Over and over again, having to remind myself of this power that can accompany us on this path of liberation. There was a mantra that came to me during that month that kind of put together the most important things that were uh, precious to me about using that time. I would remind myself in this mantra this unfolding process is happening in its own natural way, in its own natural rhythm, to the uniqueness of this body and mind didn't have to follow what anybody else was doing, or some perfect recipe for the day that I started out with. It had its own natural way of unfolding, and had to be really attentive to that. It said that patience is the antidote to striving, to having attachment to some result in our practice. So if we look closely we might see that there might be some agenda that we have that we do so many days of sitting, so many hours of sitting, so many hours of walking and not allow ourselves to let things unfold as they need to in a more balanced way. Patience really has no precise aim. It really allows us to to let the moment unfold in the way that it naturally does. It allows us fresh understandings from simply knowing the morphing and changing moment, not trying to look for moments that we think will bring wisdom or kind of repeat something that we've learned by saying words from a text or uh, hearing words from others. But we hear our own wisdom when there is patience. We hear something that comes from deep within our hearts that's very authentic, not contrived. So during that time of being here, and other times of being here, and in other places doing my own practice, I really tried to make the day uh, a skeleton of a very simple kind of schedule for myself, following some very simple uh, guideposts during the day of sitting and walking, being able to have touchstones. In the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, but really being attentive to what the natural flow would be for my own practice. Following uh, the taking of proper nourishment, paying attention to that. How much is too much? And cutting back taking a little bit on my plate in the beginning and giving myself permission to go back if I needed to instead of taking too much and then throwing it away or eating it all and then feeling uncomfortable the rest of the day taking proper rest so that I found the right balance for me and it would change every day taking fresh air uh, even when it was cold I come from a a warmer place, so um, going outside when it was 32 degrees wasn't the proper time for me. Had to wait till maybe that midday when there was enough sunshine and I could feel the rays of, or at least some warmth. So whatever is natural and balanced for each one of you, can you find that way for you? That's what this place is all about. So all the while, bringing a continuity of mindful attention to everything that I did, as much as I could, not making it in a way that was too loose or too tight, but finding that middle path for my practice, day by day, um, and hour by hour, moment by moment, as much as I could, Of course there were times of sleepiness and tiredness in my practice. I didn't have to be always alert, always sitting up straight. I could slump sometimes. (laughs) That's why when I'm here I sit in the back. (laughs) So that it's possible for me to be natural and not always be rigid and stiff. let me follow that way of, you know, someone was telling me today, sometimes I fall to the side. Well, can we be mindful there? Um, or anywhere that we're at in our posture or in our walking practice. Um, sometimes there were, there were uh, times of restlessness in my practice where I had to walk more than I sat when I was here. And so I just allowed myself to do that. So just giving ourselves permission to be patient with how it's unfolding day by day, moment by moment. I remember one time I was here practicing in Utejaniya, one of the uh, newer teachers in my practice who's come in the last 10 years uh, in my life. He said to me, when you go to the hall, it was this hall, And he said, and you feel like it's not a time for you to sit, but you're forcing yourself to sit. He would say, don't sit. When you come in here and you really feel like there's a lot of restlessness and you have to walk, go and walk, but do your walking mindfully. So truthfully, I would come into the hall, I would stand there in the back and I would feel that the body was really restless. And I would turn right around and go outside and do walking practice. I wouldn't force myself to sit, but I would be mindful when I would go out and do my walking, as mindful as I could. So just a reality check for some of you. We don't have to force ourselves into a rigid pattern here, but find that natural rhythm where we can, the mind and heart can be most mindful and uh, we can be patient with how it is. Bringing a fresh and clear moment to every experience that we're having, whether it's sitting, walking, going to the bathroom, walking from one place to another in a mindful way, uh, doing our yogi job, whatever it is. So I repeat it to myself, My practice is unfolding in its own natural rhythm, in its own natural way, in its own uniqueness. didn't have to be like anybody else's was unfolding. I appreciated this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that I found just before coming into my practice here last year, where he said, Adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. And so it really fed into that mantra that I was saying to myself that my practice is unfolding in its own natural way. So you can sense that during this time, it's springtime and some of the bulbs that have been in the ground are kind of breaking through the ice and the hardness of the ground and some ferns are coming up And they're coming up in their own timing. They can't really be forced. They have this natural uh, pace of patience. The unfurling and the unfolding of our own hearts is that way as well. Can we trust that? Can we respect that? It was interesting to learn that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for the monastics that he trained. So like that, we have certain rules and regulations here also in retreat. The rules are here to protect our practice and to protect everyone else's practice to support our inner quietude and to support everyone else's inner quietude. This uh, provides a sense of safety and ease and prevents us as a community from getting too loose so that we all individually and as a community can walk that path of transformation and purification as best as possible as we each can, within a group, as individuals. So in the Buddha's time, he called these rules the Vinaya, or the Vinaya, the Code of Conduct. In the beginning, when the monks were only a few, it is said that there was only one rule, and that rule was patience. But of course, those uh, monks were mostly fully liberated, fully enlightened. So patience was maybe even easy for them. But of course, as more joined in and acted inconsiderately or unmindfully of others, more rules of conduct were created for the purpose and intention of support. But still, patience was the supreme rule, the supreme code of conduct. So it's very highly regarded from the time of the Buddha. A story I often tell that makes a good point is a story that actually I found many years ago in the sports section of the local newspaper in Hawaii. And this is a story of a young boy who traveled to Japan. He went to the school of a famous martial artist to study under that martial artist. So here it is, the story. A young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the teacher called a sensei. What do you wish from me? The master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land. The finest martial artist in the land, the boy replied. How long, then, must I study? Ten years, at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years, replied the master. Twenty years? What if I practice day and night with all my effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. Then the student said, how is it that each time I say I will work harder, you, will te- you tell me that it will take longer? The answer is clear, said the master. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. Meaning that we're not fully present. A full and complete presence gives us more clarity, a broader view to find the way. It doesn't help to rush along to be impatient with our practice. So in the early years of my own practice during the 70s, I would hear the teachings and I would feel a sense of being at home, like probably all of you or most of you have in felt in your life in the Dharma. And even though I didn't fully understand what was being said, everything I heard made perfect sense to me, or I knew would make perfect sense at some time. I had a lot of questions, and I wanted the answers sooner than later. There was a great hunger for the Dhamma and spiritual urgency. And there was also a kind of um, grasping, clinging impatience and greed for understanding, and I wanted my practice to progress faster than it was. I learned from a teaching from Suzuki Roshi that it is when your practice is rather greedy that you become discouraged with it. So it was important for me to look at how I was relating to how I wanted the practice to progress. Was I being greedy about wanting more than my mind and heart could actually realize experientially? I remember going to Manindraji, one of my teachers, and telling him I felt discouraged in my practice. In retrospect, I could see how one insignificant stray thought, which was, I should be making more practice which was filled with impatience, that thought kept repeating itself over and over again, gathering a lot of momentum, bringing other similar thoughts with it, of course, and doubt about myself, my ability to do the practice. So it caused a huge overwhelm. I went to Manindraji and I said, I'm not good at this practice. I'm not a good yogi, I'm a bad yogi. And it was a huge, huge crisis for me. I remember going into that room uh, where I practiced with him on Maui. And he recognized this crisis as yogi mind. He said, oh, he said, everybody gets yogi mind in his own way. This is what you have. You have yogi mind. And later, much later, My my husband, Steve Armstrong, had this perfect definition of yogi mind. He says, the magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. Now, I know each one of you, in your own way, might have had that moment of seeing something small and all of a sudden it was sort of like the end of the world or a crisis. It's helpful to just to look at it that way. This is just yogi mind. Sometimes it's a real crisis, but a lot of times it can just be yogi mind, part and, pa- and parcel of the practice. So he pointed out that I was wanting or expecting practice to be other than it was, rather than just accepting whatever was coming up. Uh, I remember <laughs> one time in Burma, I really got annoyed at this person. We would go out in a line out of the hall and then uh, get in another line to go to the Dhamma hall to go eat uh, where the the, uh, dining hall was another hall where mindfulness was practiced so it was another Dhamma hall. So every time, the line was long, and every time she would stop in front of me, stop the whole line and put down her shoes and very, very mindfully putting down her shoes, putting on each, and I was so impatient and annoyed. And I made such a big deal in my mind about it. Remember that time? <laughs> and so I would just, I was writing notes, eight, well, uh, several notes, and saying, Could you please ask the yogis to take their shoes to the side? Uh, and put them on to the side instead of stopping the whole line. Well, it took a little time for me to realize this was simply yogi mind. Couldn't I just stand there and patiently and appreciatively wait for her to put on her shoes? It took me a little time. Um, Just giving you a reality check. Even people in this so-called teacher position um, have those moments. And then I remembered Something that one of the teachers along the way said, no appointment, no disappointment. It was like I had a thought, an appointment, that this line was just going to go quickly and, or, you know, in a way that I could just put on my shoes to the side as I would probably have done and then walk to the other line to get in line to walk to the hall. So, no appointment, no disappointment. What appointments do you have with your practice where there might be disappointment if it didn't happen? So much later in practice, in a more refined place of my own practice, I felt like I was in a holding pattern where I hit a plateau, so to say. And just the same old thing over and over again was happening in the practice. There was a lot of equanimity during that time. And um, it was like, uh, you could see a lot of understanding was occurring, but it would be understanding over and over again. Oh, this is anicca. This is how things disappear. They can't be seen, even, uh, even the arising of it can't be seen. They're just disappearing all the time but developing a lot of equanimity around those moments. So I went to Manindraji, and I said, in a long time, nothing is new in the practice. Nothing is really new. And he said uh, he understood that the process had to take time to ripen. And he explained to me, it takes time. Certain processes and practice take a little more time to ripen according to one's karma. And uh, with this, it took a long time, from that time to a next point in practice. It was actually a few years to go through that over and over and over again. So that time when I went to him, I remember him just leaning back in the chair and listening to me and saying in a very forthright way, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And it was like you don't have to do anything about it. You just have to keep, keep on, one step, one breath at a time, one experience at a time. Just be mindful of that. So patience again, reminding me about patience. The ripening cannot be rushed. I also learned that patience is the willingness to wait through each ripening process. And um, it it helped me to get a reality check from uh, something I heard from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was just very himself, you know, his humble forth in his humble forthright way. He was asked a few questions by an interviewer, and the interviewer said, "Have you made progress in your practice?" Kind of, just very forthrightly like that. His Holiness said. Uh, Oh, as I look back, he said, in a year, I see not much practice, not much progress. In five years, over five years, I can see little, little bit. After 10 years, yeah, some progress. In 20 years, after 20 years, yes, I can say, yeah, there has been some progress. So how can we, you know, I thought who am I, you know, to think I've made any progress or to try to examine that. It's better to just go along moment to moment. And that's how I felt that I've made, it's been the most easeful, the most easefully unfolding when there's been that kind of understanding. Beautiful um, quote from Rilke about this. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them right now. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, Live along some distant day into the answer. And so I, I can say that it's true that the very kind of fervent questioning that I had long ago, sometimes I realize, just in the middle of something like making tea, I would realize, oh, I remember I was so ardent and um, had a sense of urgency about wanting the answer to that question and now it's just like everyday knowledge to me something that is so simple in my life i made so complicated before so what did the buddha say that that why did the buddha say that it, it is the highest virtue <clears throat> one reason i discovered is because this quality activates and actualizes other virtuous qualities. It activates many others, but I'll just give an example of a few. It's a great support to equanimity, being cultivated and strengthened, that spacious, non-reactive inner balance that we can have in relationship to what's going on in the life around us or within us, When unpleasant feelings arise, we don't have to have the reaction to it of aversion. When pleasant feelings arise, we don't have to have the reaction to it of attachment. So the mind can develop this deep equanimity, this non-reactivity, when we're patient with how things are in our practice. It's said that equanimity is the ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. So the extreme of reactivity on one side is attachment. The extreme on the other side is aversion. It's a willingness to pause and to be able to observe the situation from a middle path from the point of view that has the best vantage point of all, in the middle, standing in the middle of everything. This is one of the descriptions of equanimity, standing in the middle. In India, they the colloquial way of translating equanimity is seeing with patience. And um, I call it seeing with Soft eyes—it's it's the eyes of a grandmother. Uh, some of you may be grandparents or elder enough to have children around in your life that you know when you see them. We're naturally able to see children with more patience. We we've been through a lot of life, seen people go through a lot of life. I have five grandchildren. One of them's uh, going to be 21 next month, and so I've seen her go through a lot, And, and some that are, you know, seven and eight in that range. And so you see that, yeah, they're going through this, and it will pass, and maybe it won't, maybe it'll get worse, but we can see it all with patience. Maybe it'll get better, just that wide open stance, that spaciousness of equanimity non-reactivity. Patience there with it. It's a quality of constancy also. The constancy of that... Um, I, I see it as a gentle flowing river. When there could be boulders in the way, there could be something stopping this gentle flowing river of constancy. But it can just go around, or go under, or it can stop for a while. And then when that boulder is out of the way, it can flow again. It's not; a, It doesn't have to be a fast pace. It can stop sometimes. It can pause. It can go around. It can wait, a kind of gentle flowing strength. A living example of this gentle flowing constancy in a human being is Aung San Suu Kyi. A lot of us know about her. She's a beautiful Burmese woman. She initiated many years ago the nonviolent movement towards achieving democracy in Burma. And just a little uh, about her history. In 1989, she was incarcerated in her own home under house arrest, and she spent 15 years in, in that kind of custody under martial law, under military law. And during that time when she was incarcerated, in 1991, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. And just a few few years ago, in 2010, she was released. She reminds me of this constancy, this gentle flowing river, which has a quality of non-opposition. She doesn't push against, but she stays connected with what she needs to stay connected with, the people, knowing the minds and the hearts of the people, and those who are influential in her life, in, that, in the military, in the uh, political arena of Myanmar or Burma. She stays connected and influential without being forceful. And this is the constancy of it. Connection, patience, moving around boulders and debris. She's gathered a lot of strength and admiration. She's gathered allies within the power structure of Burma. And of course, as all everyone does when they are in a person of high profile, some people don't like her as well. And that's okay with her. She's done a lot of practice of loving-kindness and vipassana for many years, actually, under the guidance of Sayadaw Pandita. At one point, she was taken from her house arrest, incarceration, and incarcerated at in at the public prison which is called the insane prison I N S E I N but it it is insane <laughs> and then she was put on trial for some ridiculous reason I I won't go through the details of that there was a news article during that time distru- describing her trial where she walked into the room of high government court officials and military officials. And as she walked in, the description of this time was was so beautiful. It said she walked in this room. She was serene and beautiful, part of the description goes. She carried herself in such a respectful way. She had a sense of dignity and non-harming about her as she walked to her place in the room. She had a sense of connection with everyone instead of feeling apart or separate. And as she walked in, those in charge, the military and the officials of the government, they stood up and they put their hands together in pranam, in respect to her. And. Um, you know, some of them bowed a little to her. This is a kind of affect that a person like that can have. Her patience, her endurance, her gentle, persevering effort through all the years. I recently uh, saw um, a video of her. Actually, I I recently saw her in Burma. She was at the, the very first book festival that they ever had in Myanmar, in Burma, and um, she was conducting part of a seminar. So, in this YouTube video, someone interviewed her, and she said, uh, The interviewer said, When you hear or see the military or you're connected with them, and don't you want to bring them down? Don't you have, like, mm. about them resentment or something? And it she was on the YouTube, so I saw her face. And she looked at the interviewer incredulously and she said, Oh, no, no. She said, I want to bring them up to their <laughs> highest potential, not to bring them down. So I thought, wow, that's the right attitude. That was um, very profound, you know, a, a manifestation of her really deep integrity in the Dharma. There was so much equanimity and gentle flowing endurance in that. The patience that she had over the years for that. Somebody else asked her, "Um, didn't you get bored when you were at home, you know, all those years? Didn't you get bored? And she said, oh no, she said, I had my books, I had my music, I had the teachings, and she said, "I realized I wasn't a gadabout, you know. <laughs> that means, you know, she didn't want to go around and look at everything and do everything." And uh, she said, "I learned a lot when I was there, and, and a lot about patience." She didn't say that, but I just took that in as that was part of her being, actually. So, letting go of uh, impatience is like letting go of the reactivity of greed and hatred, wanting it to be something that it isn't, not wanting it to be something that it is. Reactivity is the opposite of equanimity. It was letting go of that, developing deep patience, more acceptance and understanding of ourselves and of life, a way of caring for ourselves so deeply. I look at patience as a way of really serving the devotion I have to my path of practice and to everybody's path of practice. To really tune into that devotion. We all know only too well how impatience has tremendous power over us, mostly because of its habit pattern, the momentum of habit. It makes the to-do list, getting things done, more important than connecting with loved ones. Whenever I could see that happening in relationship to close friends and family, and especially several years ago I saw that my to-do list was much more important than Um, and rushing through it was much more important than pacing myself in life and having more patience with how things are. You know, my my mother named me Patience. My birth name is Paciencia. (laughs) So I had to learn sometimes uh, you're named something because it's what you need to practice. (laughs) I think that was my case. So the list was More important sometimes in the past. Well, having to raise children, uh, a big part of my raising children was as a single parent. And then raising four children, you know, was uh, a lot to do. So it became important for me at one point to make the list instead of to do at the top, it was to do or not to do. That was the title of my list. And that gave me permission to cross a lot of things out. You know, to see what was not important in my life. It really helped to awaken me to the sensitivity of others also. Uh, how how it was for them to rush through life because of me. So all of this to lead up to a story about my mother. In raising my four children there was an endless list, of course. And during a time when my mother was visiting, she would visit us every year for about a month, six weeks, sometimes two months. This is a time we could spend together. She always liked to go to the grocery store and make some, some food, some um, Asian foods for us. Filipino foods for us. And this was what she enjoyed the most. And she enjoyed going to the store and just pushing the cart around and looking at what they had and putting things in the cart. She was in her early 80s, one of the last times she was with us. And um, her body was still strong and alert, but going much more slowly. And during these last times that she was with us, I was able to go along with her at a slower pace because years, a few years before that, with honesty I can say that I was rushing her and I was being very impatient with her. So we were in a grocery store. She must have been in her seventies then, and I was in a hurry to get out of the store. So. I was pushing the cart faster than she could walk. That was part of it. And I wanted to get out of the store and get to the next stop. We got in the car and she sat down, of course beside me, I was driving, and I um, heard her sniffling. And My mother was a strong Filipino woman. She, she passed away. And I haven't seen her cry very much um, in public, although in private I've heard her. And she was crying. And I looked over her to her and she was, had some tears coming out of her eyes. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? And in her little accent she said, I'm shedding a tear. That's how she knew how to say it, I'm shedding a tear. And I knew what happened. I knew I was just pushing her and rushing her. So I said, I'm sorry. And I, I constantly remember that time. And um, I wish I could have done it differently. But it happened the way it happened. And I learned a great lesson. And I said, I'm sorry, Mom. And it was later on OK. And I know my mom would forgive me, and she did. It was a painful lesson for me. We have constant opportunities to practice patience in our life and here on retreat. And sometimes our life gives us lessons to practice it here. To practice it here gives us lessons and strength to practice it at home. So I hope that's what we're learning more and more deeply here so that we can allow the Dhamma to unfold in its own natural way, in its own rhythm, in the way it needs to unfold for us uniquely as individuals. And we can respect that and enjoy the the process as it goes along it can make a huge difference in our lives and in the unfolding of wisdom and true love in our hearts so I'd like to end with um, this beautiful Chinese proverb patience is power with time and patience the mulberry leaf becomes silk So let's just sit for a moment and let all those words dissolve. And then we'll chant the sharing of blessings. So if you're not familiar you can, with the chant, you can pick up this piece here and we can chant this together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.